carpenters do not become master carpenters because they love tables. They don't become master carpenters because they love chairs. They don't go through uh, bloody knuckles and failed scrap wood because they love the thing that they're building. They do that because they love the, 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 the process and the craft of creating something out of the element of wood. From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dan Reed. He's the CEO and co-founder at Seed Fundraisers, a consultancy that's dedicated to coaching and training fundraising professionals on how to grow generosity. And this is what we dive into. And we unpack what the true purpose of our work is as a fundraiser and how you actually evolve your vocational conviction in your work. You do not want to miss this conversation, so let's dive in. Hey, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Noah. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And... Dan, I know you're the CEO and co-founder at Seed Fundraisers, but for those that don't really understand what that is or haven't heard or seen the work that you and your team are doing, could you share a little bit more about what Seed is and kind of what is some of the thinking behind that? Well, our heart is for activating generosity. And so our heart really as a company is for training and equipping talent that will activate generosity in others. And so um, as that has grown over the last few years, we certainly have um, kind of expanded to other areas of the social sector at large. But really, our, 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 um, uh, our focus and our origin and uh, really where we started is, is all around the work of fundraising. Uh, and so our primary purpose is to coach and train fundraisers. Absolutely. And I love how you reference this idea of expanding generosity or kind of instilling that or growing that. That's something here at Virtuous we're really passionate about. And it's really what's kind of sparked the vision behind Virtuous for Gabe almost four or five years ago. And so I think there's such great alignment between kind of coming together with our partners and really thinking about this idea of how collectively can we help organizations grow generosity? Because one thing that we've seen is that there's kind of a generosity crisis going on in our country. Mm or the number of people that are actually opting in to giving to charity continues to decrease. So even in a, in a season of growth from an overall giving standpoint, we're seeing some challenges as far as nonprofits being able to engage more people. And in some ways, their tactics are actually pushing people out of the ecosystem. Um, and so how have you actually seen that in your work at Seed? How do you, how do you all think about that? Um, how do you talk to fundraisers about that um, throughout your work? That's a great question. You know, I think, uh, I guess where I would start is we, we sometimes talk about the, we always start at the, what we call vocational, uh, the vocational conviction of fundraising. So let me kind of unpack that because I think it actually is the answer to your question. And that is primarily mm -hmm. that, that for fundraisers, we, full, we, we truly believe that the most elite, excellent fundraisers in the social sector are those that are, uh, uh, have discerned a deep sense, a deep conviction that they want to uh, activate 
and incite generosity beyond a particular cause. And so the reason why this is important is that in our culture, uh, I believe that great fundraisers have a heart for actually increasing the, the, the measure of generosity in our culture, not just money raised for causes, which by the way is also, is also legitimate and that's valid and that's really good, um, beautiful. But, uh, but this idea of generosity expands beyond cause. And it's the idea of, as a culture, what cultural value are we actually trying to pursue? And uh, is there anyone out there who actually believes that their work is intended to increase the measure of generosity at a cultural level? And so uh, that's kind of where we, where we start. So when we see the idea, so I'm, I'm saddened ultimately by, um, we can on one hand, we can celebrate dollars raised per GDP. Right, like we we can look at that stat. That's an important stat in our in our in our field. Uh, but ultimately, I'm saddened a bit because when I see less donors giving, and that's that's what the stats are suggesting: more dollars raised, less dollars giving. Um, I am curious about that. I'm curious about what is what does that say about the? Is that indicating a a decrease or increase in the level of generosity? Uh, and yeah. for any fundraiser who's been around for even a year or two. Right, you know that generosity and money raised are actually not the same thing, um, and so I believe that that fundraisers that have a heart for generosity are really those that are that are engaging this, this discussion in a, in a really meaningful cultural way, not just a not just a, a pro, uh, professionalized way. And I think that's an important important part of this conversation. Absolutely, and I think there's so many bits of what you said that um, I want to unpack, but before we do that. I kind of want to take a step back because you said like, you know, great fundraisers care about this idea of instilling generosity. And you've spent most of your career in kind of a fundraising function of some sorts. Um, what sparked that in your story? Like why give so much of yourself? Like how did that initiate, you know, and why do you dedicate so much of your time to, to growing generosity? Well, it wasn't intended. <laughs> as, as so many... As so many of my colleagues kind of it's not the first time I've heard that. <laughs> it's kind of we all have these squiggly paths towards this <laughs> career we call generosity. <laughs> well, great. You know, so many of my colleagues have the same story as I, which is they fell into the work of fundraising. Um, and so, so I guess real quick though, um, so I, I, where my story begins is, is at, at age nineteen, I had, I had, a, I had a few, um, yeah, I, I had basically sixty days to complete a whole lot of hours, like 45, 50 hours of volunteer work to go from my, my uh, sophomore to my junior year of college. And, and I had to, uh, and so to, to, in order to complete that, I volunteered at two organizations. One was a large political organization and the other one was a small community development organization on the North Shore of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, which is where I'm from. Mm. And so um, I went to both organizations organizations and I said, what do you need done that no one else volunteers to do? Because in my head, I was thinking, well, if I, if I, if I, uh, you know, uh, uh, that of course is my, is the way I'll get all these hours complete and, and independent of, of each other, they both said, well, fundraising. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, well I've course. never heard that. Really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. Give me a, I'll, I'll do that. And I started to write direct mail. I started to write uh, fundraising mail. And so, uh, 
a, a, a longer story short is that I did that for seven years. And in my eighth year, uh, every, every year of, of my kind of the first seven years of my career, I kept asking myself the question, well, what's next? What do, what do I really want to do? And, um, and I remember one time I was, I was uh, back in Pittsburgh for, for Thanksgiving with my family and a family friend was over. And, and I remember uh, he asked me, like, well, what's going on? Like, what are you doing these days? And I said, well, I'm a fundraiser. And he said, oh, wow, like, I, that's, that's great. Well, what, what do you, like, what's next for you? <laughs> and I remember, like, it, that was the first time I noticed, like, oh, no one takes this seriously. Um, I'm, like a fake, I'm like a fake profession. And, um, and, 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 odd, and, and honestly, he asked the question that I'd been ask, asking myself, too, uh, every year. And so uh, in my eighth year of fundraising, I was fortunate enough, fortunate enough to have a bit of time and a bit of circumstances that allowed me to really think more critically about the work I was doing. And, um, and so uh, ultimately, what, what, I, what I realized was that I, uh, who I am uh, was my identity. Uh, when I fully expressed myself in the world, when I when I showed up the best way possible in the world, uh, when I worked the best, two things were true. One, I generally tend to challenge people to action uh, pretty naturally. And then two, I connect people. Um, I challenge people to look to a story larger than themselves. And so that was my kind of what I would call vocational conviction. That was how I showed up really well. Um, and, and I noticed that about myself after years of fundraising. I noticed that about myself, and 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 um, and I was able to. And along those lines, my I remember my grandfather. I was talking to my grandfather about this, and I come from a family of hardwood, like master carpenters. And I remember talking to him um, in this eighth year of my career, and I remember him saying something very interesting. He said, "Dan, why do you think that master or carpenters become master carpenters?" And I said, I don't know, Grandpa, why? And this was like a four-hour conversation because he's kind of this consummate storyteller. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, and I remember him saying, he said, Dan, do, uh, carpenters do not become master carpenters because they love tables. They don't become master carpenters because they love chairs. They don't go through uh, bloody knuckles and failed scrap wood because they love the thing that they're building. They do that because they love the, 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 the process and the craft of creating something out of the element of wood. And I'll never forget that. I re- realized like, oh, man, that's beautiful. Like, I want that so bad. And so it was that com- uh, combined with this realization of who I am, these two kind of vocational themes for me, which was connecting people to a larger story and challenging people to act. And that was the first time that I had some clarity. And I remember stepping back and I said, awesome, I have this, I have this clarity. I'm, and, and I looked around and I said, now I can choose an occupation. I can choose a career. And I looked around and I was like, wait a minute, I think I might be in it. I think I might be in it. Um, I could have been, I recognized that I could have chosen other occupations that expressed these vocational themes. But at the end of the day, I have the opportunity opportunity to connect people to stories larger than themselves, challenge people to action, and in my day-to-day craft, activate generosity. And that's a craft. That's actually a day-to-day practice. And, uh, and it was in my eighth year of fundraising that I actually fell in love with my work. And when I went from like a half-decent fundraiser, just off my own intuition and gut, to 
starting down the path of becoming an excellent fundraiser, which is fundamentally this work of activating and inciting generosity. So that's a long, I, I recognize it's a little bit of a long story, but I think that my story is, is um, started off really quite common. And maybe if I had any uniqueness to my story, it was in the, the opportunity and the privilege to uh, be able to feel really convicted and, and ultimately choose it. Uh, and so I, I, I hope that for, the, uh, for, my, for my fellow, for my fellow uh, fundraisers, and that's where, that's where we, you know, we challenge people on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis of how can we actually really own this work of activating generosity? Absolutely. And it's so beautiful, that story of kind of transition from this just being a job to this being, you know, a conviction. And I started with your story because as you and I both know, the success of a fundraiser tends to be so rooted in our own stories and more specifically, like our own relationship to giving or to money, you know, which starts really early on. Yeah. Why, why is that? And what should fundraisers really do to unpack this in their own story or with their team? So if I'm leading a team and I'm thinking about this, how do we express our stories or unpack our stories so that we can actually become excellent fundraisers like you mentioned? Yeah. Oh, that's such an important, that is such an important question. You know, we, we talk about um, the three postures between fundraiser and donor. And the first posture is that of um, where the fundraiser is subservient to the donor. And in this posture, this is where, this is like uh, uh, Oliver Twist style po- uh, fundraising, right? Where it's, it's, please, sir, may I have some more? You are the, you are the, the great benefactor and I am the lowly beneficiary. And, um, and we make our, ourselves feel small. This, by the way, I mean, th- this can still raise money. You can still do that. People can be uh, charitable to that posture. And I, many, many, many fundraisers, uh, just from my perspective, like from my experience, I'd say 65, 70% of fundraisers are kind of fall into this posture, this category. Uh, there's, a, there's a limitation though. There's a ceiling to this, to this posture. Uh, the first is, is that, you know, if you, if you sit down and have dinner with a donor and you are feeling small, if you are feeling subservient to that donor, uh, it's likely that one, you will not challenge that donor to generosity. You will not activate, you will not be intentional or proactive in, in, in activating that generosity uh, because you wouldn't dare. They're, they're, they're more valuable than you. And we understand where this comes from, right? Like in our culture, money, people with money equal power, status, value, et cetera. And so those, that, the, those of us that are, are Indeed. those with it, we, we belittle ourselves to it. And so it's totally natural to feel that way on some level. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's a lower ceiling here. Uh, you will not challenge some of the generosity. And two, quite frankly, like who wants to feel small for all their career? So you leave. <laughs> so I actually think that this is actually like a, a fairly, uh, uh, this, this, is a, this is a less discussed, <laughs> uh, a less discussed reason or, or factor in, the, in our horrendous uh, uh, tenure rates as fundraisers. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking at 16, 18%, I'm sorry, 16, 18 month um, tenure, t- uh, tenure with, as fundraisers. Uh, and I, yeah. actually, I actually think this is a big deal, actually. Is our Absolutely. 
subservient, why would I do that for very long? Well, and I think the the bigger thing just to inject here is that like it's not just that it, the tenures are short. It's that when you survey them, you know, I think it's one third or more are saying when they switch jobs or leave their current fundraising role, they're leaving fundraising. Like, you know, so it's yeah. not even like they're just moving yeah. around um, and shopping for the best org. It's like they're like, I'm done with this profession. Yeah. Tragedy. Yeah, it's a great point, Noah. I mean, I, from my from what I've seen. Forty percent. I've seen. I've seen a number. Forty percent of fundraisers expect to leave the profession. That's that's heartbreaking. That's heartbreaking. Um, imagine imagine forty percent of doctors deciding to leave the like expect to leave the profession in the next twenty four months. Imagine that. I mean, be. I mean yeah. that that would be a crisis. That would be a cultural crisis. Um. And and that's that is the number that we're looking at in professional fundraising. So that's that's the first posture. Um, and and the the second posture is one where the the fundraiser is uh, manages or controls the donor. In this posture, the fundraiser's goals are the only things that matter. Uh, they have a million dollar goal. They're going to get after it. They're going to go after it. They're going to drive towards it. And in this scenario, donors are only assets. Uh, they're only they're only they're only commodities uh, towards achieving a fundraiser's goal, and uh, this of course raises plenty of money as well. But again, low ceiling. Uh, a fundraiser with this posture is going to uh, drive a donor to fatigue, uh, hurried asks, uh, transactional giving. Um, the entire goal is the donor's goal. I'm sorry, the fundraiser's goal. The fundraiser's goal is the only one that matters, mm. um, and so uh, again, I think that this is this, like has a, a this has a sales job, quota. kind of. Yeah, they're just yeah. like shopping to hit their quota. That's right. That's right. It's it's big equipment sales, right? It's whale hunting. Uh, that and that's that's primarily what it looks like. And by the way, the the, the two of those postures fundamentally is a question of your relationship with money and power. And um, and this is why I believe that great fundraisers have dealt with and have asked the question, like, what is my relationship with money? How do I feel around it? Uh, how do I respond to it? Do I have insecurities around it? Uh, do, I, do I want it too much? Do I, am I jealous of it? Um, there's a whole lot of questions, right, that one could ask uh, themselves. But these are the fundamental. Like, these are the fundamental questions. Uh, these are the fundamental things around these postures. The third posture, of course, is is what we call where the fundraiser is missional with the donor. And in this posture, we are shoulder to sh- fundraisers are shoulder to shoulder with the donor. And in a, con- and, in a and in the context of relationship, we can we can turn to one another and say, uh, "What do we want to achieve beyond ourselves?" And and the fundraiser's ability to challenge and point people to a story beyond themselves uh, to, and then participate, challenge them to participate in that thing beyond themselves. That, oh, I tell you what, that is beautiful. That is where you as a fundraiser, you just start to, uh, uh, you start to love your work. And, um, and, and that posture is one that actually requires quite a bit of, of intentionality and discipline. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember, you know, I, I, the, I started to create that posture in myself again in this year eight for me. 
and uh, it was it was really life giving. Uh, it was it was the greatest thing I could have done in my own work, which was waking up every morning and saying, "I want to create missional relationships today. I want to I want to do something together," and that was powerful. Yeah, and I think this idea of what you're talking about here with this posture of being missional with the donor is so similar to what posture we're promoting with this idea of being or through responsive fundraising is that it's not an orientation around, you know, we are the charity, please give to us. It's not an orientation that's like, we need to hit our goals, you need to support us. How do we shop for more donors and just milk as many? But it is this third posture where you're actually aligning yourself with the donor and seeing yourself as really the donor's advocate. And the charity or the nonprofit or the cause is actually just the platform at which allows the giver and the good to connect and kind of to be to to kind of be executed. And I think that's exactly what we kind of think through as we're talking about this idea of how do you listen to donors? How do you connect with them in an intentional way? And then how do you make suggestions on how they can actually express generosity in the most in the best way for them at that right time? And it's exactly what you're talking about and stuff that we do with our major donor programs. It's like, how do we scale that to a broader face of the donors? Because I think that would win back more donors to the generosity (laughs) system because you're showcasing it not as we're the one asking for money or, hey, we need to hit our goals. Rather, hey, you know, look beyond yourself. You know, together we can accomplish this in our world. And I think that level of thinking is really what we promote here at Virtuous and are trying to enable people to do through responsiveness. So it's really a beautiful thing. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you want to dig further into responsive fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack just for listeners of this podcast. If you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the responsive fundraising blueprint, which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is going to be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com slash podcast.